Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with democracy reporter Keaton Ross. Last week, the Oklahoma State Election Board released an audit of the June 28th primary election results. Keaton is here to discuss it. Tell us, how does an election audit differ from a recount? Yeah, so in an audit, it's really just an overall assessment of how things went. It's not triggered like a recount by a close race where you go back and count every ballot. Um, the way Oklahoma did it, and this was their the first uh, audit that they've done, uh, they, they went back, randomly selected several counties, and uh, just looked at a sample of ballots from certain races, put those against the certified results, and then also looked, um, you know, at some operational things where uh, ballots categorized correctly, that sort of thing. How many of the county election boards were examined? So it was a sample of 33 of the county election boards out of 77, so, you know, just under half. Um, 30 of those counted, uh, recounted a sample of, of one race on the ballot, and three recounted a sample of, of two races. What did they find? Were there any notable issues that were uncovered? So there, there was no discrepancy between the vote totals that were certified and the totals that were recounted in the audit. So that was, you know, no difference in the vote. Uh, there were two uh, kind of issues that they did identify. One was where uh, a spoiled ballot was placed in the wrong area. The other was a uh, provisional ballot was counted as an election day vote, but there was nothing that that differed from the outcome. All the votes were counted correctly. So uh, if there was a case where votes were counted incorrectly, uh, would there be a, a legal means to request a recount or to challenge the race? No, the, the way the law is written in Oklahoma and the legislature passed a bill in 2019 authorizing the election board to conduct these audits. So this has come together in the past couple of years. But the way the law is written, it doesn't uh, authorize, you know, a change in the results. Um, it's kind of just an assessment of, of how things went after the fact. So for election officials, um, how can an after-the-fact audit uh, like this be beneficial? Yeah, so really, you know, we had the election in June. We have an election coming up in a couple of weeks on August 23rd and then November. Um, so it's a chance to see, you know, if what kind of issues may have popped up, and then you have a chance to address that in training and points of emphasis ahead of the next election. So in the case of the the spoiled ballot placed in the wrong area, that's something where you can look at and, you know, issue a directive or, or place an emphasis on that so folks know this is what you're supposed to do if you get a spoiled ballot, uh, that sort of thing. So it's just good uh, training and and can help them ahead of the next election. So that, that helps election officials. How does the audit help the public? I think the main benefit from the public's perspective is just kind of an, an, a reassurance that the the election did go smoothly, that all votes were counted correctly. Um, 
and you know that's especially important now when we're we're in the era of a lot of misinformation about election fraud and votes not being counted correctly. It's just another reassurance that in Oklahoma, uh, our election, the votes were counted correctly. Now, do uh, most states use a, a similar process to what we do here? Yeah. So I believe the count is 34 states have uh, an election audit process. Um, most do a similar uh, method to Oklahoma. There are some states that do um, what's called the forensic audit that's a little more in-depth looking at uh, some closer races on the ballot. But for the most part, it's a pretty similar process in states that have authorized these post-election audits. All right, we have uh, runoff elections coming up this month and then uh, an election in November. Are we going to see audits for those? That's the plan. That's what the the election board has said, uh, that they're planning to conduct audits of these upcoming elections. And that process is open to the public for uh, anyone who's interested in in following it or, or seeing it happen. Thanks, Keaton. You can read uh, Keaton's stories about democracy in Oklahoma, the election audits, and uh, all of that on our website at oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, make sure you also sign up to get Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. In this segment, I'm with Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. And uh, she's been continuing to follow the fallout from the state's pandemic relief program for students that's now grabbing national headlines. Jennifer, what's the latest? Late last week, the state of Oklahoma filed a lawsuit against a Florida company that it had hired to handle two of its pandemic relief programs for students. These were the Digital Wallet Program, which gave small grants to parents to buy school supplies, and the Stay in School Program, which gave private school tuition scholarships or vouchers to parents. Now, Jennifer, we've talked before on the podcast about Digital Wallet. Can you remind everybody what happened with that program? Sure. This is the program that gave parents and families and students $1,500 grants to buy school supplies. This was in the fall of 2020, so a lot of students were learning from home or their schools were closed or, or, you know, part-time opened. Um, So there were a lot of needs And this program was meant to address some of those needs so they could buy a laptop or school supplies or curriculum, things like that. What we found when we investigated this program was that, um, you know, more than $500,000 was actually spent on things that were not educational, things like TVs, you know, grills, furniture, smartwatches, ring doorbells, things like that. Now, uh, our investigation we did uh, in collaboration with The Frontier, the story based on that published back in May, and a a lot's happened since then. Can you bring us up to speed a little? Sure. There was a lot of um, outrage and reaction right away. Um, You know, Democratic legislators called for the resignation of Secretary of Education Ryan Walters, who was really instrumental in this program. Uh, There was a um, federal audit that was already underway when we published that has since come out and really mirrored our findings and actually found more uh, non-educational purchases misspending than we found um, and is recommending that the U.S. Department of Education take back some of that money from the state. And now we have this lawsuit. And was the lawsuit expected? 
I think so. Yeah, there were uh, at least two letters that the state sent to the company, um, letting them know, you know, putting them on notice, basically, that uh, legal action was coming. And why is the state uh, pursuing the lawsuit? I think a lot of it is to recoup some money. You know, like I said, the federal auditors said that they want the U.S. Department of Education to take back some money. So this was free money that the uh, U.S. Department of Education, you know, gave to the state that we would now, that taxpayers would now have to cover, right? So, uh, I mean, I think the legal action is is mostly to try to recoup some of those funds. Of course, there will be costs associated with the lawsuit also. What's the state's argument uh, that the class wallet is liable here? It's mainly a breach of contract. They say that class wallet should have kept better records, um, especially in the verification process, which they actually outsourced to another company um, to check whether students were eligible for these two programs. They also say that um, class wallet violated their contract and should have monitored the funds better. Has Class Wallet responded yet? Not yet. Um, they haven't filed anything yet. The lawsuit was just um, entered Friday. So uh, what do you know about their side of the argument just based on your reporting? I mean, we've reviewed the contract, um, read through it many, many times. It is pretty clear that the main thing the state asked for was the ability to access the system and to be able to go into their platform and look at purchases. Class Wallet absolutely did that. Auditors found that the state never took advantage of that until except once, and that was after the program had ended. So at least on that end, it seems like Class Wallet, and they have said before that they, you know, fulfilled their contract and, and did what they were supposed to do. Class Wallet says they were not notified that they were supposed to follow these federal rules. They consider themselves a vendor where the state is um, claiming that they were more of a subrecipient of these funds and should have fallen under these these rules that the, the federal government has. Great. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read Jennifer's story about this lawsuit and uh, the other history of these gear funds and class wallet on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, uh, click on the newsletter tab and subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. In this segment, I'm with reporter Paul Monies, whose latest story looked at how the state is now verifying voter signatures for initiative petitions. Those are uh, being checked on a pending state question that could legalize recreational marijuana for adults 21 and over. The new process now involves an outside vendor, but it's a company that also has a related polling company. Paul, tell us how this vendor got selected for the job. Yeah, so back in 2020, um, if you remember, there was uh, obviously COVID came on, on the scene and there was a shortened legislative session. So there wasn't a whole lot of policy legislation passed, but one of the few bills that did pass was um, a bill that allowed the Secretary of State's office to buy some new technology to verify signature for initiative petitions. 
Why did officials want to tighten up the process for signature verification? So the old way they, they used to kind of look at the petitions on every page that got turned in, and you need hundreds of thousands to, to qualify for the ballot. And they would check them manually with uh, voter registration records to make sure that those were actual registered voters that had signed a petition. That obviously took some time, and they wanted to kind of modernize the process. They looked at some other states and seen that technology could help by scanning some of that stuff and checking it with various points and voter registration data that's already out there. So uh, state goes out, finds a vendor. Why did this particular vendor raise some eyebrows? So the law itself allowed um, the Stecker State's office to uh, to bypass the Central Purchasing Act. So there was no bid on this, but uh, basically the state looked at a couple of contractors, one in Oklahoma here, it was Western Petition Systems, and another in Arizona. Uh, they ultimately went with the one in Oklahoma, but that company also has an associated polling firm that does a lot of polling and has been around for you know almost two decades and does a lot of stuff, also has polled on state questions before. Uh, so it takes several steps to put state questions on the ballot, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, it's pretty high bar for citizen-led petitions. Um, so you, at least this, this latest one um, has to have at least 94,000 signatures. And so the organizers for State Question 820, which is an adult-use marijuana one, had turned in 164,000. Uh, now, not all of those will be actual voter signatures, but uh, that's what the process is doing right now is to verify them. And how long does the signature verification process usually take? So we took a look at the uh, the last seven or eight ballot questions that made it to the ballot or were close to it and uh, since 2016. And on average, it was about 22 or 23 days. And so for the latest one, for state question 820, we're at 33 days and counting. So what's been the response by the organizers uh, who are uh, trying to get the recreational marijuana question on the ballot. So they, they've allowed them to watch the, the verification process. So they've had people at uh, the offices for Western Partition Systems uh, every every day they're actually counting. Um, and so they're they're quite pleased so far, but they're, they're kind of still not really saying much because there's no actual deadline for the Secretary of State to count the signatures. They can kind of take however long they want. Uh, the only recourse at that point is to file a lawsuit to kind of get them to speed it up. What did the Secretary of State's office have to say? So they said that this this contract was basically still under the purview of the Secretary of State. They've got Secretary of State temporary workers that are out there as well verifying uh, as part of this the technology is that the being used by Western Partition Systems, but um, that they basically uh, vetted this contractor and said they had the security processes in place that they were happy with, and um, they're they're fine with the process so far. Now, uh, Western Petition Systems, um, you mentioned it's uh, part of the same organization as a uh, polling company. We're talking about Sooner Poll, uh, right? Bill Shepard's organization. Uh, how much is Western Petitions uh, getting paid to verify the signatures? So the state contract calls for uh, a flat fee of $300,000 per year, no matter how many signatures are verified or how many state questions come before uh, for verification. So last year, there was nothing that went on the ballot. Uh, this firm got $300,000. Obviously, this year, the fiscal year started in July 1st. Uh, they're working on this state petition now, which was filed July 5th. Uh, so they're, they're getting $300,000 no matter what happens. And if they get, you know, no petitions, they still get paid. And is Western Petitions, uh, Paul, did you take a look? At, are they uh, newly formed? Do they have other clients? Do they do this work for other states? So from what we can tell, they're they, they new in this process. Um, they've gone through kind of a, a, their own vetting process. They've 
put themselves out there on their website as they're uh, spearheaded this process um, in Oklahoma, and they're probably marketing themselves to other places, although we're not confirmed that. Um, and uh, what are some other ways that uh, state questions can get on the ballot? So obviously the citizen-led petition uh, has signatures you get from verified from verified voters, uh, but also state lawmakers can pass resolutions uh, by themselves, and as long as the majority passes them and the governor signs them, they themselves can put state questions on the ballot for, for an election. And that's a little easier process in that form to get done that way, and there's been several done that way in the past several years. And, you know, in observing this and, and uh, kind of listening to the buzz as people are talking about this, I'm sure uh, there's been plenty of chatter. What do you think the chances are that the recreational marijuana state question makes it onto the November ballot. So, I mean, just from the outside, it looks like it's pretty slim uh, because they're still counting verifying signatures for the petition. Uh, you know, they have to get the ballots printed for the November election by the end of the month. And there's still a chance for once, to, if they are verified, for people to uh, to challenge the signatures in court, and that goes to the Supreme Court directly. But that's still like a 10-day business day challenge that, that people have after the signatures are verified. So it's it's a pretty tall order. Um, you know, hopefully they're the, the organizers are, are you know they know they're in a time crunch, but uh, it, it's at this point it's probably kind of uncertain that it's going to make the ballot. So it, it just. Just so I understand, Paul, the the organizers collected, uh, as I recall from your story, substantially more signatures uh, than are required. So there's plenty of room in there for uh, unverified signatures to fall off and and still have plenty to get the question on the ballot, right? That's right. And and but the concern is the turnaround time here. That if uh, if the sufficient number of signatures aren't verified in time for uh, a potential challenge that would go to the Supreme Court and for ballot printing that uh, the question could still fail to make the ballot even though there were plenty of verifiable signatures. That's right. And the governor and the Secretary of State have a lot of leeway in terms of when they can call an election. The governor, if it does not make the November ballot, the governor can call a special election some other time next year to vote on this particular state question. Uh, but also, that you know, the, the initiative petition process itself has multiple chances along the way for challenges. In fact, just last month, the Attorney General uh, challenged the ballot language itself and rewrote it. And the organizers were fine with that. But, um, you know, that's another potential place where people are, are, can slow down the process as well. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read uh, Paul's story about this new signature verification process for state questions on our website at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that 
that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.